this is Marty Martin. And Art Woods. Before we start this episode, we wanted to ask you to go to bigbiology.org survey and tell us what you think about the show. The answers you give us will help make the show better. And we're really interested in what you have to say, what kinds of topics you want to hear more of, how much you like my dad jokes, and any other opinions you'd like to share about big biology. The first 50 people to take the survey will be entered into a drawing for some big biology swag. So act quickly. We'll choose three of you for a big biology t-shirt, a coffee mug, or even a throw pillow. So please take a minute and go to bigbiology.org survey and tell us what you think. We hope to hear from you soon. Here's the show. In 2005, many Italians became obsessed with the number 53. It had been well over a year since that number had been drawn in Venice's regional lottery, and people were sure that it would hit soon. At the time, lotto players picked lucky numbers ranging from 1 to 90 for drawings in several Italian cities. Combining winning numbers from multiple cities meant bigger prizes. The number 53 was drawn in other cities, but it took more than 150 rounds before the number came up in Venice in February 2005. By then, some Italians had spent their life savings on the game, falling victim to the gambler's fallacy. They believed that the absence of a 53 during the previous rounds made it more likely the number would be drawn. The fallacy is that drawings are totally independent. A number not hitting on previous days has no effect on its chances on subsequent days. The same thing happened to gamblers at a Monte Carlo casino in 1913. A roulette ball landed on black 26 times in a row, and players lost a fortune betting on red. Humans are experts at finding patterns, and this might be why understanding chance is so problematic for us. When we see a giant thundercloud, we accurately predict rain. When we smell cookies in the oven, we know treats are soon to come. This adept pattern finding, though, makes it hard for our brains to deal with chance. Many, if not most people, want the world to have meaning, and events that depend solely on chance seem meaningless. The problem is, chance is common and important in the natural world, and chance events sometimes seem meaningless, but their consequences can be anything but. In his recent book, A Series of Fortunate Events, Sean Carroll argues that we should place more emphasis on the role of chance in biology. Sean is an endowed chair of biology at the University of Maryland and vice president for science education at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. He points out that any novelty in biology, any new trait or new strategy, has its roots in chance. Sean claims that much of life on Earth was strongly affected by chance events, with all the forms and functions of modern organisms contingent on all the sequence of chance events in the past. He says that our very existence, and even this podcast episode, is contingent contingent upon Marty, Sean, and I all being born. Which is contingent upon the existence of our parents. And their ancestors. And the origins of Homo sapiens. Which in turn depended on the rise of mammals. Ultimately traceable back to an asteroid impact 66 million years ago that killed the dinosaurs. No asteroid impact, no big biology. As you'll hear later in the show, Sean makes a lot of good points that chance was very influential to the particular forms of life that are now on Earth. But of course, it's natural selection and other processes that also determine the fate of chance events. Sean thinks biologists don't put enough emphasis on chance. For conversations in the evolution community, natural selection has dominated a lot of our thinking. And I think we've just accepted, we just sort of always thought, well, there's enough variation for nature to play with. And not concerned ourselves with almost the qualitative aspects of that variation, that Chance invents. The change in a character does depend upon a change in the genetic material. 
Now, the fate of that invention may depend upon all of these other external forces, epistasis, as you say, etc. But let's not overlook chance as the first event here. Today on the show, we talked to Sean about chance in general and chance in biology, from Kim Jong-il's prowess on the golf course to the formation of the Himalayas to the ideas of Sarah Silverman, Eddie Izzard, Kurt Vonnegut, and other thinkers and comedians. As Sean is also a filmmaker and science communicator and just won the Emmy for his documentary, The Serengeti Rules, we also talked with him about his approach to telling stories in science. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Let's talk. Let's talk biology. Um, so first, thank you, Sean, for joining us today. Um, we've both been very big fans of your books for quite a while, and so let's start right off with an embarrassment. Um, in terms of endless forms, both beautiful. Uh, it's just a fantastic book, and it had a huge influence on the way that I thought about biology. Um, I think its focus is fair to say that it was Evo Devo or evolutionary developmental biology. And at the time in my career that I read that, that was I just started my professorship, and it really has shaped um, the types of things that we do in, in the lab now. Um, we want to spend most of the time today on your newest book, but why was your first? Well, why was that book about Evo Devo? Why did you choose that topic? I was really writing what I knew. Um, I was new to the book writing game, so this was all an evolution. You know, I didn't think a long time ago, oh, I'm going to write books. Nor did I get up that morning and say, oh, I'm going to write Endless Worms Most Beautiful. It was a really gradual process. And I think in the late 90s, because discoveries, some discoveries in developmental biology were so unexpected, uh, but so fascinating to the general public. So um, the idea that we share genes with fruit flies and worms, the idea that, you know, tinker with these genes and you can grow an eye where one didn't exist before, or you can convert antennae to legs. These things were just too fascinating not to know more about. So I, because I was, began really as a developmental biologist, my long-term ambitions were evolutionary biology, but I felt we had to learn about development. So I was a card-carrying fruit fly, Drosophila biologist, working on the mechanisms of fruit fly development when a lot of this stuff started to materialize. And I started being asked to you know, by reporters or documentarians to talk about it. I asked, asked to give public talks. And so that just started me into sort of explainer mode. And um, my first attempt at book writing was really for more for professionals and students. It was a book called From DNA to Diversity. And that was kind of to sort of test the muscles. And then I was approached um, by Jack Repchek, who was at W.W. Norton, and said, hey, would you like to you know, try this for a general, you know, trade audience. So um, that was my first attempt. You know, I, I, you got to kind of figure out a lot of things. It's a new world, you know, you get an agent, you, you have to figure out what your voice is, you know, how do you get the right level? But it certainly was something that, you know, I had lived. I mean, this was a story that I had lived. I knew all the primary discoverers, discoveries and discoverers, you know, like the back of my hand. And so, and it was a framework that, you know, had been evolving in my mind for, you know, professionally for you know, a couple decades. So start with what you know. And then it's, uh, but I'll tell you a little side note, which is um, when I, when I secured an agent, Russ Galen, and we went through sort of the, the interview process, he said, well, you know, are, are there any other books, you know, 
you got any other books in mind after this one? Because, you know, what good's a client that writes one book? <laughs> Just one. <laughs> and I'm like, no, sorry, man. I mean, you know, this is, this is such a huge undertaking. This is what I know. And it turns out, as I, I barely even put the pen down from Endless Forms, and I wrote the next book called The Making of the Fittest, because it, I, as I wrote Endless Forms, I realized all the directions I wasn't going to go in Endless Forms, just for sort of coherence and, and brevity. And, um, and then away we go. So. so so how hard was it to, to switch out of the, you know, the mode that you presumably were in, which is writing academic papers, you know, for a, a, an academic audience into writing for the more general, general public? Was that, was that a tough transition? I love the challenge. I mean, you know, to say, yeah, it's a tough transition. I mean, the blank page is a really intimidating thing, right? We all know it, whether we're writing a scientific paper or anything, right? It's hard. Where do you start? What do you say? How do you, you know, how do you start off with a bang? Um, but I love the challenge. And this was, this turned out to be something really important for me, sort of kind of my scientific soul, because unlike scientific papers where you're under these space constraints and, you know, that, that darn reviewer three can say, you know, it's always reviewer trim three. this out of the discussion. And you're like, oh my God, I, you know, we worked four years to say this. Let me get my two <laughs> sentences in about what I think it means, right? <laughs> So the filters were off, and that was really liberating, and that I could tell a story in the way I wanted to tell a story without space constraints, with using visuals, with throwing in anecdotes, you know, whatever it might be. And it was really liberating, and because it was the one thing I did by myself. So I was running a lab, and the lab was absolutely just, you know, blazing, pedal to the metal. Um... This was like my one contribution because as a, as a lab head with a bunch of postdocs and students, you know, I was kind of just a coach mm -hmm. and I had all these players. But mm -hmm. here the coach could actually yeah. do something constructive and productive. And yeah. this, was, this was my thing that I could put down on paper. And, and look, my thing that I was responsible for, you know, the quality and, and execution of it. And, um, but I would also say to anybody else listening, um, I think teaching had a really big role in that voice coming out because, you know, all of us that step in front of a classroom of, you know, freshmen or, or later, and you're trying to engage them and you're trying to inspire their interest and, you know, whatever storytelling you use, whatever jokes you crack, whatever hooks that are there in the actual content, you know, we want to use all those, right, to engage our students. So I, I think that teaching was a really helpful experience and I would also just, we'll get to this maybe another part in the conversation, but I find good teachers are good communicators, you know, on camera and, and everywhere else. And so um, that that experience, I think, has lots and lots of dividends. Hmm. Does Have your experiences in writing books had anything to do with your new roles as a involved in, in this Tangled Bank Studios? And congratulations on having just won an Emmy for Serengeti Rules. Well, and thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, because... Look, I think if we're going to find one umbrella here, it's storytelling. I, so for either, you know, grad students out there or younger faculty, um, I wish somebody told me this now 30 or 35 years ago. Tell a story. When teaching, when talking to colleagues at a meeting, when talking to your neighbor, <laughs> when boring your family, tell a story. So... I, I, it, it started to dawn on me at some point in book writing that that was 
the key attribute that I was going to tell a story, that it wasn't just conveying information, but that it was in a narrative, a narrative that connected cause and effect, that connected events over time. Um, yeah, so teaching, public speaking, uh, writing, all storytelling, and of course that's what film is, and film just does it with extra dimensions of visuals and music and everything else. So I got to know filmmakers over a period of maybe 10 or 12 years where I was participating in various documentaries, sometimes went on location, um, really admired. I thought filmmakers and scientists had a lot in common in terms of work ethic and passion for the material and sort of natural collaborators in that they had this incredible talent to bring to life, to make visual things that were invisible or, you know, difficult to grasp or just make them beautiful and wondrous. And scientists, of course, knew the empirical things and they were, you know, discoverers and they, they knew that thrill of discovery and they knew the meaning or substance of discovery. So they're kind of natural collaborators. But through that experience, um, I also learned that I think a lot of filmmakers didn't feel they were doing their best work or the best possible work. And a lot of scientists I knew, including myself, felt that we, the end product wasn't always what we wanted. And some of that was because we each didn't sort of have final control over what was going on. And so the, one of the ideas that spawned Tangle Bank was, well, what if a scientific and educational organization, in this case Howard Hughes, had editorial control, editorial responsibility, and we gave filmmakers more time and resources to kind of do their best work? And that's the guiding philosophy, is that, you know, scientific clarity and rigor, you know, rigor without being dense, just clear, with great craft, visual craft, storytelling craft, um, put those two things together, and, you know, um, um, okay, it sounds a, little, sounds a little arrogant, but I think we're kind of finding our stride of, of what can happen when those two things come together. Hmm. And what would you say that your earlier career as a scientist has given you? I mean, how has it influenced the way that you're you're producing films and things now? If I was to guess, if I was, well, I'm gonna, you're asking me, I'm going to take a stab. I think it's an understanding of both the process and the moment of discovery. So the quest that we're, you know, any any scientist is on, they're they're. They want to find something. They've got a question in their mind. They, they may be out looking for something. Maybe they don't know what they're going to find. But that process that drives us, and then that unexpected, blissful moment of discovery, those rare moments when you're like, holy smokes, so this is what it is. And then your mind just riots so I think the insight that I have from being a scientist is that drive, that quest to find things out that all scientists have, and that thrill of the moment of discovery when, and it may be delayed, you just sort of see something, you see a result in the lab, you find something in the field, and it's like, uh, oh, it, is this it? And then your, your mind just riots with what could this mean, and you realize you've crossed a threshold. Things, you know, things are not like they were the day before. You have found something and now that's what you're working with and that's what you're trying to understand or to, or to flesh out. And so the way that works in writing storytelling is I often try to identify those moments and, and engineer 
backwards from them. In other words, I know that's going to be a big dramatic payoff in the story. So I have to think about all the trails, including false leads, that took that person to that moment. And I'm trying to build for the reader, you know, that they get a little chill when they hit it, you know, or maybe the equivalent of just a little tear in the corner of their eye that somebody's, <laughs> somebody's hard work pays off. And filmmaking the same, because I'm not a filmmaker, so I don't turn the camera on. I'm working with filmmakers and, and both sort of an advisory and sometimes on camera. And I'm trying to do the same thing, which is to say, look, you know, the big reveal, the big aha is this thing right here. So this is what we're trying to build towards. And filmmakers have this, you know, both training and instinct about sort of the arc of an act, the arc of a story. And you want to kind of know in your plot twists when those are coming. So, uh, and when I interview scientists, you know, I'm, I'm really focused on that thrill of discovery. I want, that's, because that's where all the emotion is too. And I think the, the thing that got about storytelling is that, you know, it's not about just conveying information, right? It's about conveying the whole experience. And that's a more sticky and emotional experience for the reader. And that's, and that's just going to last with them a, a lot longer. And I think for us, that's part of the power of podcasting too, is that, you know, it's scientists just chatting about stuff that really matters to them. And, and, and you hear about it in a, just a fundamentally different way than you get off the page. Uh, and that, that's really powerful. The page is the worst. Uh, the page is a very censored and structured thing. And the page, unless it's in a book where you have a little more liberty, of course, pages of scientific papers, they erase all failure. Yeah, know, so that's why we all know that failure is so central to science. But of uh -huh. course, the formal record of science is purged of all failure, right? So... Hey, let's move on and talk about your uh, your latest book, uh, which Marty and I have both recently read and are thrilled by, um, a series of fortunate events. And um, I'd say the you know the central theme in that book is about chance and the consequences of chance um, and sort of where chance comes from in biology. And and we want to spend some serious time on this idea of chance, but maybe let's let's get into it. Um, by revisiting this idea of golf games and just tell us about Kim Jong-il's <laughs> amazing golf round at the Pyongyang club in, in 1994. Yeah. So this was reported in the press that in his first round of golf ever that, uh, he, he shot, I guess, 11 holes in one. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I mean, even, even press reports could kind of figure out that that seemed unlikely. Um, but I looked up the golf statistics because, you know, it has been reported that somebody has scored, you know, two holes in one in a round or something. I thought, well, how rare is that? So you look it up and, you know, for an amateur golfer, hole in one shots about one in 12,000, something like that. Um, that's a lot of holes. I mean, there's usually about four par threes on a round. So, you know, you got to play a lot of rounds to be in that one in 12,000 thing. And for a pro, you know, with more skill, it means they're closer to the hole more often. It's about one in 2,500. You know, Tiger Woods has scored only three in his professional career. So, you know, he seems like a decent golfer. And um, <laughs> so, so, so Kim Jong was, you know, there's probably reasonable skepticism there. And then I actually found the scorecard online of the Pyongyang golf course. And like most 18-hole golf courses, there are only four par threes 
it, it would usually be what you would get a hole in one on. And of the par fours, you know, they were all 300 yards plus. So to so to get that fifth hole in one, he would have to he would have to ace one of the long par fours, which would make him, you know, in the words immortal words of Bill Murray and Caddyshack, you know, a big hitter, just like the Dalai, just like the Dalai Lama. So um, yeah, so I think uh, I think we're a little skeptical of that scorecard, yeah. among, among among other things. things. Yes. Yeah. Huh. So why is it that? That humans, I mean, the way that we deal with probability, there's a, there's another series of really cool anecdotes from the book about um, how people think about hot roulette wheels, right? Um, and and there has been, 1913, Monte Carlo, you tell the story about 26 consecutive hits on black. And and this, this uh, phenomenon in Italy, 2004, 2005, about the lotto, where everybody was going crazy over 53. I mean, what, why, why, can't, why do we have such difficulty with probability and chance? Well, I think as, as neuroscientists have studied this, look, you know, our brains are kind of like pattern recognition machines, right? So if you think of our evolutionary history, it was really important for us to know, well, you know, find our way home, uh, know when, you know, fruits would be available on trees, um, know, you know, where to move at different times of year, etc. So we're always figuring out patterns in nature, and that's a, that's a survival skill, right? So, you know, if, if you hear thunder you know, you might expect rain, right? <laughs> Cause and effect, okay? Yeah. So, but our brains, when we see something like, you know, 26 blacks in a row, we think, well, the next one's got to be red, even though that next spin of the wheel is completely independent of previous spins. So the odds of that next spin being red or black are exactly the same as they were for the previous spin. So we get caught up thinking that a truly random event has is somehow influenced by previous entirely yeah, random so we events. We have an independence problem. It, we have an independence <laughs> problem. It's, you know, parents who have, you know, several children all of the same sex and think, wouldn't it be nice to have Let's a... Let's just do one more. Honey. And they think, they're due. <laughs> they're due. And, of course, the odds that they're going to have that child is exactly the same. So, um, so we get fooled. This is called gambler's fallacy. We get fooled by patterns that aren't really patterns, that are just a random string of events, and we think the next event is somehow going to be influenced. Now, if you then bet on that number and get it right, well, you're just convinced that you're smarter than the other people <laughs> at the table, and that probably just encourages more behavior like that. Um, so chance, you know, it's kind of a love-hate relationship we have because, look, we love games of chance. It's thrilling. You know, to to uh, you know, blackjack and roulette, craps, all this sort of stuff. Lottery, you know, trying to win it big. But we we get really uncomfortable with you know. We will admit that those those rolls of dice are, are a chance event. We'll admit that the roll of the wheel, you know, the spin of the wheel is a chance event. But in a lot of other ways, we don't like chance in our lives. And and that's that's also you know sort of the. The disconnect and a, a, a trouble that we have is that we would, we would like our world to be less random, to have fewer accidents happen, and for something or someone to be looking out for us. And um, but all sorts of things happen that aren't good, and that's usually you know when we we're it's hard it's harder for us to rationalize. Yeah, that's one of the. And when, when something good happens, we're like it's because of our virtues, right? When something yeah. bad happens, <laughs> it's bad luck. I don't know. Maybe we say it's bad luck, but it's just harder yeah. to rationalize. That's one of the weird things about um, this sort of attribution of probability that it's it's you know the the values of pattern recognition as you're talking about that's easy to see, but the penalties of 
inappropriate pattern recognition, that would seem to be a really strong selective force too. And, and why did one win out over the yeah. other? Yeah. Well, I guess I would say, you know, some, whoever thought, you know, well, that bears past, there can't be another one and, and left the cave. <laughs> Chomp. Done. You know, maybe we've, maybe we've, we tried to clean up part of that gene pool, but um, no, it's still, it's still, it's still too prevalent amongst <laughs> us. So um, yeah. So we have this, we, we have this difficult relationship with chance again. It, it's both thrilling on the one hand, uh, but on the other hand, we want to deny it, its existence in, in other realms. And that's kind of the heart of the book. That's why I started the book there, which is to get us all comfortable with, you know, how much we kind of voluntarily engage with chance in our lives, um, but also to set up that sort of its philosophical and psychological implications are, are yeah, difficult for yeah. us to wrestle with. Well, let's, let's turn to one of those really major chance events that you spend some significant time on in the book and that has, you know, profoundly shaped life as we know it. And that is the asteroid impact 66 million years ago. So the Cretaceous Paleogene, or as it used to be known, the Cretaceous Tertiary Impact, uh, which had an astonishing number of aspects of chance to it that um, have had everything to do with us being here and talking on this podcast today. So do you want to lay out what those chance events were? Sure. Sure. Well, this is, and I'm, uh, the story of the discovery of this one is another great one, but we won't spend much time there because it was such a big idea. You know, it, it shook geology to its core that the idea that something like this happened. 40 years later, we're a little more accustomed to it. So as you've all heard, that an asteroid struck the Earth 66 million years ago, and after that, you know, not a single dinosaur bone has been found. So we attribute um, a mass extinction to that asteroid because the impact boundary and the extinction boundary are, are coincident. And so geologists and ecologists, all sorts of people have worked on, you know, what exactly happened, and, you know, we understand that that asteroid really caused hell on Earth, that it was a probably a decade to three decades of very difficult circumstances on Earth, sufficient to drive three-quarters of plants and animals to extinction in the ocean from tiny 4Ms to, you know, land plants to giant dinosaurs. So, um, but what we also understand is while mammals existed at that time and had, had existed for about 100 million years, they were largely small, very small-bodied, um, burrowing, etc. creatures, and especially now demonstrated uh, vividly by a new discovery in Colorado last year, um, mammals really took off in the million years following this asteroid. And their body size expanded very rapidly, far beyond what they had ever achieved before. And they start branching out, and they become the dominant form of animal, um, the, the largest form of animal on, on both land and in the seas. And, of course, that branching out led to the origin of primates and eventually, you know, to us. So... But we've learned other things about the asteroid, and folks have been trying to model what exactly that asteroid did and why did this impact cause a mass extinction, and they appreciate that the nature of the rocks in the Yucatan at the impact site um, are distinct. They're, they have high sulfate and, and carbonate content, and that meant that the vapor plume um, that, that happened after the impact, it was blown up into the atmosphere, um, that that had certain characteristics, high sulfur content, those sulfur aerosols um, deflect, reflect sunlight um, more effectively. And so that vapor plume had a big role in the suppression of sunlight, which would shut down photosynthesis on the planet. And 
the estimate is that as, as little as 1%, probably no more than about 13% of the surface of the Earth had the right combination of rocks that when vaporized like that would cause a mass extinction. So now string this all together and you realize that this asteroid, this chunk of rock was probably circulating the solar system perhaps for as many as 4 billion years. Enters our atmosphere, crosses it in one second, enters our atmosphere 66 million years ago, some particular day and moment in time. Had it entered 30 minutes sooner, it would land in the Atlantic and probably not cause a mass extinction. It lands 30 minutes later, lands in the Pacific, probably doesn't cause a mass extinction. Dinosaurs may still well be here, and we wouldn't be. We wouldn't be having this conversation. So um, I start the book with what I call the mother of all accidents, because truly, with respect to the human species, this, is, this accident is our mother, and uh, really hit the reset button and changed the um, life on Earth in a dramatic way in a short period of time. And when you add all those things up, you understand, and it's a one in, you know, we don't know of any other asteroid that's hit the U.S., it's hit the, the Earth or the moon of that size in 500 million years. So you're really looking at a low frequency event that just had to hit that particular place on the Earth, you know, to, to set in motion that mass extinction. And uh, had it not happened, life would be entirely different. So those, that's the kind of specificity that I want to give in the book. Because to say that, you know, our lives or the story of life has been highly dependent upon chance, well, okay, but I think some of the power comes from yeah, the specificity. Agreed, agreed. There's another aspect of, of chance that comes out of this, and that's that some things survived this at all, right? You know, based on your description of, of what happened in, you know, a crater 25 miles deep and, you know, no sunlight for years on end, it, it, it's astonishing that anything survived it. Yeah, but again, the signature is there. Small, burrowing, shorebirds. The only group of birds that survived are, probably, are burrowing or, or shorebirds. Small mammals, snakes. Um, and, and even they took a huge hit. So it, it, it looks like, or scavengers, things that were sort of semi-aquatic. Crocs and turtles definitely did better than, than purely terrestrial species. So if you could survive off debris and scavenge, if you were small in body weight, um, then obviously your nutritional requirements might be fewer, but also you reproduce more mm -hmm. quickly mm -hmm. so that Bounce back you can fast. imagine that the small would take over the earth because yeah. they would um, repopulate uh, more quickly than large things. So I think there's a rational explanation for the pattern we see post-mass extinction. And it's really, you know, again, a matter of luck that you know, nothing prepared these survivors. You know, no, there was no natural selection that said, you know, <laughs> brace, brace, brace for impact. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, you know, these really not very dominant, not very prevalent sort of things, um, you know, inherited the earth and, and took over. And, and then, of course, they, they radiated quickly, filling, you know, all the, op all the open uh, space and, and niches. So, um, but I, so I think the evidence is, you know, is continues to grow that makes this makes the dots in this narrative connect better. I, you know, in 1980, when Walter and Louis Alvarez put this forward, you know, they didn't have the ecological evidence. They were, they were the first to just kind of connect, hey, this iridium layer might mean this came from outer space. And, you know, and they were right. Um, but the whole ecological consequence of things, it's just taken more time to put more, you know, meat on the bones. Yeah. Now, these chance events, so you, the way you framed it just a minute ago, that humans maybe wouldn't be here without this one chance event in history. This isn't the only major event 
in history that sort of put us where we are. Weeks ago, we talked with um, Kate Wong from Scientific American about a really neat article she'd written about sort of the update on the evolution of, of humans. And one of the things that we talked about was whether we are special in any way or if it's just a series of fortunate events that got us to be where we are. One of my favorite examples that you used beyond the obvious KPG um, was the collision that changed the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that one and how it also set the stage for human evolution? Yeah, and and again, this is something that you know I only discovered by reading. You know, it's not this isn't something I inherited through just you know circulating the hallways of biology. <laughs> but geologists have been thinking about this for a long time, which is you know understanding that forty million years ago or so, uh, the Antar- Antarctica was verdant and ice free. Um, understanding from paleoclimatology that. Post-impact, I mean, the Earth was pretty much ice-free from pole to pole. It was, you know, may have been the best of times if you kind of like warm climates on, on Earth. But there's been a, a cool-down over that time, some gradual, some a little bit more abrupt. And one of the major events that geologists think, you know, really set us on the path to ice-covered poles and eventually into the ice ages. So we're living in the ice ages the last couple million years. This is an unusual time. There hasn't been an ice age for 300 million years on the planet. So um, really strange times on, on planet Earth. But a key trigger is, you know, what pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere? Well, one of the things that pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere is the weathering of rocks. And so one way to get more CO2 out of the atmosphere is to have more rock. And you're like, well, how would you get more rock? Well, it was the collision of the Indian plate, which was 65 million years ago, south of the equator, down towards Madagascar. But this small plate was moving more quickly than other tectonic plates, and it moved northward and slammed into the Asian continent and built the Himalaya. And that is attributed, that, that is seen as the trigger to further cool down of the atmosphere, reduction of CO2, and the icing over um, of the Antarctic. And, uh, you know, when you look back and say, well, why did that happen? <laughs> Well, it just turns out that, you know, tectonic plates, which you know are, you know, uh, the continents and oceans aren't these tectonic plates, and they're moving around, they're moving very slowly, two to four centimeters a year. But it turns out the Indian subcontinent was moving about 15 centimeters a year or more. Well, why is that? Well, it it was a smaller chunk that broke off from a supercontinent, and it's thinner. And the thinner and smaller you are, the, the faster you sort of move along the... And so, you know... If you didn't have the small Indian subcontinent and that collision hadn't happened, we wouldn't be in the ice ages. And a lot of paleoanthropologists, their consensus is, is that you know one explanation for our big brains is the highly tumultuous climate that our ancestors have lived through for two million years, and that this brain is a you know is the organ that helps us adapt to these flip flops in habitat that we create our own, we shape our own habitat with tools and fire and all sorts of things, and that. Um, that's given us, uh, enabled us to persist in ways that other, some other groups have not. So our big brains, you know, might map their way back to, um, the little chunk of the Indian subcontinent that, uh, just moved a little more swiftly, uh, on its northward trajectory, thanks to the way the plate broke up 140 million years ago. (laughs) What a great way to start an intro bio lecture. How did the formation of the Himalayas lead to the dominance Us of the sitting Earth in this humans? room today? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> We're going to take a quick break to bring you a message from our sponsors. 
Support for this episode comes from Hopkins Marine Station of Stanford University. Founded in 1892, Hopkins Marine Station, located 90 miles south of Stanford's main campus on the Monterey Bay, is the oldest marine laboratory on America's West Coast. Hopkins scientists work both locally and at field sites around the world, and their research addresses fundamental questions at every level of marine biology, from genes to ecosystems. For example, a team from Hopkins recently attached cameras to bluefin tuna to understand how they move through their environments. Another team is investigating how to restore tropical reefs using heat-resistant strains of coral. Find out more about research and educational opportunities, visit hopkinsmarinestation.stanford.edu. That's hopkinsmarinestation.stanford.edu. Support for this episode of Big Biology comes from Sable Systems. There's basically no other company that has had such a big impact on my research. I started using some of their products to do insect respirometry when I was a postdoc, and I fell in love with their modular, intuitive, easy-to-use machines. And when I got my next job, I bought a whole respirometry system based on their gear. You know, I was always surprised by the way they encouraged me to modify their devices myself. Most companies ominously tell you that opening the device voids their warranty. Sable Systems Gear is designed by working scientists to understand that every experimental setup is unique and that systems have to be highly customizable. The devices are unfussy, robust, and easy to set up. You can find their products at sablesys.com. That's S-A-B-L-E-S-Y-S dot com. Now, back to our conversation with Sean. So, so I think that leads nicely into this next point that I'd like to discuss, and that's this, this distinction you draw in the book between the idea of chance and the idea of contingency, which, if I can articulate it, means, you know, what, what's the context in which the chance event happens, and how does that context then shape the consequences of, of that chance event? So... Is that a fair statement of contingency? Yeah, that's fair. I, I'm, And I admit there's a little section in the book where I try to tease this apart because you can talk about chance. And so let me just say, so chance, I mean a rare, unpredictable, or random event, or one that involves so many variables or forces that it's near enough to be random. So when I say something like, you know, that Indian plate essentially, you know, broke off and its size and thickness is a, is a matter of random. Of course, right. if we knew every physical right. force... It's not actually random. It's you could traceable to some... You, yeah, you yeah. could potentially predict yeah. what it yeah. was, right? But it's so nearly random because it's determined by so many different things that it just happens to be that way, right? Um, so, so that's sort of what I mean by chance, which is a pretty inclusive term. By contingency, and remember, these terms, you know, they don't have formal definitions in science. They don't have formal definitions in other spheres either. But by contingency... I mean it in a historical sense, and that's a past event or process that was necessary for a particular outcome. So, for example, you know, for us to be here, you know, our parents had to get together. They were, that, may, that may have been a chance occurrence, but it becomes a contingency mm-hmm. for our existence, mm-hmm. right? And so really, contingency is sort of like the aftermath of chance, right? And so, but then again, it doesn't mean a lot to say that we're here through a series of contingencies. I think the power comes from the specificity of the chance event that creates that contingency. So the asteroid looks to be in a contingency for getting rid of the dinosaurs and giving the mammals a chance to take over. That becomes also a contingency for, for us to be here. But the event is the actual asteroid impact. The chance event is the asteroid impact. Um, so we can all think of the personal, the individual and collective contingencies, you know, the, all the things that had to happen for us to be here. So, so let me just kind of push, push back on the idea of the power of chance a little bit that you that you lay out in the book and and I think this relates to this this very idea of, of contingency um, you know so so you assign a lot of power to say chance events and if we 
imagine that in the context of say particular genetic mutations happening or not, um, then that's assigning the you know the power or the novelty to the to the new mutations. But but the contingency is that those are happening in biological systems in which um, you know there's lots of other things happening: epistasis among different genes, uh, you know the structure of the genome, uh, the selection that then occurs on these mutations that are happening. And all of those are kind of, you know, non-random, non-chance-like processes. So why not, why not assign the power to those other non-random things and instead of the chance itself? The reason why I get a little, why I give more emphasis in this book to chance, including things like random mutation, is look, that's where things start. And I think that, and you know, there's a section in the book where I tell you, look, my, my admiration for Darwin is infinite. And I've spent a lot of time, you know, in Darwin's shoes, whether that's in the Galapagos or in his writings, in, in archives, etc. And there's no naturalist, no biologist, probably no scientist for whom I'll ever have greater admiration. And natural selection was his baby. And he really, you know, thought it through, explained it, and had to defend it. And, but I think that for conversations in the evolution community... Natural selection has dominated a lot of our thinking. Okay, what's the adaptive value of this? What's what's the forces of selection? And you know, and trying to under you know find those situations where we understand the selective forces that are going on and all that. And I think we've just accepted. We just sort of already thought, well, there's enough variation for nature to play with, and not concerned ourselves with almost the qualitative aspects of that variation that chance invents. The change in a character does depend upon a change in the genetic material, right? So, chance invents, and I, you know, we can give, talk about lots of concrete examples of that. Now, the fate of that invention may depend upon all of these other external forces, epistasis, as you say, etc. But let's not overlook chance as kind of the the first event here, right? And and that I think that tilts our thinking. It's not to swing our thinking, you know, 180 away from natural selection. It's to keep in view that, you know, natural selection is just the competition between variants, but chance generates those variants. And so that's all I'm, I'm trying to express is I think we should spend more time thinking about chance because I think we haven't spent enough time talking and thinking about the role of chance in um, variation in biology and as the creative step in the evolutionary process, uh, just just a, I guess a hopefully a short follow up. So so I hear what, I hear what you're saying, and I and I am largely sympathetic. I think natural selection has been overemphasized, and I, and I'm I'm not a natural selection maximalist here, but I I want to just say that you know you can imagine situations in which, uh, say population sizes are big enough that all of the mutations that could happen will happen. And so even though each individual one is a chance event, statistically speaking, it's, it may be a sure thing, like, uh, you know, reversion of the lac operon. Whereas in other, you know, populations that are very small, uh, maybe only a few mutations could happen or not. And so you can imagine a lot of sort of nuance here about the roles of chance that depend on the biology of the species and the size of the population and all that stuff. And, and maybe that's just boring nuance, but... Uh, no, I think that's I, I think that's great. I, I, these are the sorts of things I hope people will take off, you know, and, and run with to, to develop some more um, 
you know, texture to what I'm, you know, what I'm, what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I think, you know, I think it's really constructive to think in that way. So sure, given a large enough population of bacteria, are you going to find a single antibiotic resistance mutation in there? Yes, you don't know which bacterium, right? And also, in terms of chance, you know, I think what the philosophical bit. So I think it, it, as biologists and trying to understand the machinery of life, it's really constructive for us to strength test all these things, right? Okay, where should we be emphasizing chance? We should be thinking about population size. We should be thinking about these forces. How do we do natural selection? But when we talk about non-biologists who are not so much worried about the machinery of things, but maybe what this all means, for me, I think chance carries a heavy message. Uh, and, and, and it's funny because I can, for example, uh, the philosopher Daniel Dennett wrote a book that uh, uh, was popular, I think, in the 1990s called Dan Darwin's Dangerous Idea. And he really talks about natural selection. And I think the more dangerous idea is chance. All respect to Daniel Dennett, who writes beautifully <laughs> and thinks very clearly. But I, I truly mean that. I, I don't think natural selection is, is nearly as dangerous in these terms as chance is. It's, you know, that, you know, without an asteroid, we're not having this conversation. That's not a worldview that's been around human culture f for very long, right? You know, to, uh, those of us lucky enough to be inside the scientific community you know, have had some time to wrestle with these things and to kind of, you know, push and pull on each other and say, well, I kind of give this a little more weight, etc. But when you step back and say, you know, what have humans thought for centuries or millennia? Well, chance is a very, very powerful challenge to most of that thinking. Yeah. So, Sean, would you, I mean, just one little thing about this, as practicing biologists, and whether you're a geneticist or an evolutionary biologist or even a medical doctor, is there some way that we do our work differently? We design our experiments differently to give more credibility, to pay more attention to chance? I mean, is there a way that we can take an active role in getting the rubber to meet the road? Or is this something more about a retrospective appreciation of chance in the case of Indy or in the case of the KPG? Or you know, How does that work? I, I think it's just part of, I think it's the narrative and much pushes against that narrative. You know, the, the majority of Americans, according to polls, believe that everything in life happens for a reason, from conception to death. A reason, in other words, not chance. And, um, you know, that is a mindset that then gets really challenged by things like cancer, like a child born with a disease, like a pandemic. So I think the narrative of understanding that chance, we live in a chance-driven world. I mean... That's a that's a powerful thing, I think, because I think I think one interpretation of you know embracing this idea of chance is that you know we we don't have control because there's so many chance things that are buffeting us about, right? But the flip side of that, which I think you just said, is that you know if if there is a lot of chance that's inherent in in events in the world, then and and there's not something or somebody out there controlling all of it, that means we have to take responsibility for the things that are happening in our world. And, and, and that actually sort of liberates us to have the power to, to do that, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, denialists and misinformation experts will take the uncertainty that chance entails. So we know, you know, heat up the ocean, you increase the frequency of hurricanes, right? Okay. I can't tell you when the next hurricane is forming, I can't tell you where it's going to hit, and I can't tell you its magnitude. 
So do we throw up our hands and go, oh, well, science doesn't understand. No, we understand that you've increased the probability of severe hurricanes by what we're doing. Don't get lost in the, you know, it's, it's, I can't tell you that if you, you know, expose yourself to radiation every day, you know, which cancer you're going to get or when you're going to get it. But I know that your odds are up. You know, reasonable people want to be um, informed of extra risks that they may be taking or that we may collectively be exposing ourselves to in the way in the way that we behave. So, um, yeah, but, but we're in a we're in a very interesting intersection right now, of course, of what science understands and what people are willing to pay attention to. So I, I can't I can't let you go without talking about this last section of your book that I, I just found so fantastic. You're getting a bunch of thinkers and comedians, not to say that comedians aren't thinkers, in the same room and having a conversation um, among these folks about chance in particular. And I guess, you know, you, you included uh, Sarah Silverman, Ricky Gervais, Seth MacFarlane, Eric Idle. I could go on and on. A lot of my heroes. Kurt Vonnegut was there, Albert Camus. And... Um, you know, it, it's not an accident that you including comedians in this conversation about chance, but why and what do you think the comedians get about chance generally and maybe in the context of biology as we've been discussing that other people don't? Yeah, this was this was a revelation for me. Um, I'll just put in general that that at a surface level, like I'm a fan of stand-up comedy. And uh, and I'm a fan of, you know, Kurt Vonnegut's writing since I was a kid. I'm a fan of Monty Python. That's not an unusual phenotype, you know I mean? I think... <laughs> I share that so, phenotype. <laughs> so you like to laugh. And I think I'm just laughing. But I thought about how can they get away with what they get away with when I'm, so, I'm quite conscious that even if I say something fairly reasoned and say, hey, look, you know, chance plays a big role. So if I'm to say, which I think I say in the last chapter, that... You know, whatever concept we've had of God, for example, that I don't, I don't think it's reasonable to think that God is in the conception business, you know, choosing the winning sperm and winning egg, not in the weather-making business, not in the pandemic business, etc. Um, but I know when I say that, you know, I might get people might pull back a little bit. And that, that concerns me because I, you know, I, I don't say that with any malice. I'm just trying to say that with, I think that that's where we're at. But I watch, you know, Life of Brian or an episode of Family Guy, or a stand-up by Ricky Gervais, and I think, this guy's playing to packed arenas and, you know, tens of millions of people on Netflix. How does he get away with this? <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, it started to dawn on me, okay, maybe just the humor makes it go down easier. And I sort of, and, but then what I did is I reached out to, to for example, Eric Idle, who kindly replied, and I was sort of like, isn't this dangerous to do? And I'll tell you what he told me. It's a, it's a little, this is a little giveaway of the last chapter in the book, but okay. But he said, comedy is telling the truth. And I thought, wow, this is what scientists and comedians have in common. This is what they see as their societal role. He says it's the emperor's new clothes. They have to call it the way they see it. And yeah, they might wrap it in a way that makes us all laugh. We all acknowledge our own you know, frailties and, you know, inconsistencies and things like that. But it is, of course, sometimes speaking the truth about power. And so um, I just wanted to explore that. And I went back, you know, I went into Vonnegut's books. I mean, his book, Sirens of Titan, which I think is 1959, you know, it's pretty overt that he's thinking, you know, and he's lived through the Dresden bombing and 
gosh knows what else, he's, it's, it's very overt that he's thinking, hey, you know, we're all accidents, is basically what he's telling us in 1959. You know, he's a beloved writer. That, just, that doesn't seem to haunt him, you know. People didn't seem to call him out, you know, for the next 30 years of his life. Um, so, so then I, I just realized that not only, you know, they see themselves as truth tellers, but, you know, through animation, science fiction, cartoons, songs, think of some of the Monty Python songs, that we sing and laugh right along with it. And, and I thought, you know, first of all, great kinship. Also, these folks are so pro-science. Eric Idle has done stuff with Stephen Hawking and Brian Cox, and Seth MacFarlane is the executive producer of the Cosmos. two seasons of yeah. Cosmos. <laughs> and Ricky Gervais talks about science all the time. And, and I thought, wow, not only do, you know, not only do we have kinship as truth-tellers, they're extremely pro-science. And I thought, what a night, you know, what a great thing. I admire these people anyway, because, gosh, they're, they're 70% of my entertainment, you know, <laughs> other than sports. And, and yet they, they have this, this worldview and, of course, this gift to make us all laugh. And what could be more important in life than, than laughing? So, um, yeah, so I explored that in the last chapter. It's called A Conversation About Chance. And I brought these people together virtually. Most everything they say is verbatim from some source, if not directly to me, then to somewhere else. So, you know, artists are motivated to say some things. They're not just telling knock-knock jokes. And this is their medium. And, you know, one question I have for Seth and I have for all these people, which is, you know, do scientists have something to learn about making a point, you know, from these artists? Um, there's a quote from Vonnegut in the discussion. He talks about Shakespeare. Whenever things got a bit heavy, Shakespeare would bring in a clown or something like that to kind of lighten things up. You know, in my observation is that, you know, what do scientists bring after the heavy stuff? More heavy stuff. <laughs> right? Here's my reprint. Some of it in terms, <laughs> yes, some of it in terms that, that, you know, no one can penetrate. So um, I'm just thinking, you know, of course, being in the film world, you know, what, how can we collaborate with artists? And, you know, we can certainly bring awe and wonder and inspiration in collaborating with artists, but can we also go into the dangerous places? with artists, the, the places that are uncomfortable for people. And um, they have, with far greater success than I think the scientific community has. So I think there may be something to learn there. No, that's that's fair. It'd be, I think it'd be tough for us to do. Okay, Sean, we're going to let you off the hook. Uh, the last question is, what did we not ask you? What else would you like to say that we didn't get to? Well, look, I think for biology teachers, I'd love to hear from them because I think this idea permeates biology, but we don't lean on it. We, 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 you know, we, we talk about you know, genetic drift and in, in, in evolution. We talk about mutation in genetics. We may talk about you know, segregation of chromosomes in cell biology. Um, but I think this is something that uh, in many facets of biology we have to offer to to help people think about their lives, including, you know, whether it's the genesis of cancer. So um, I'd like to hear from biology teachers, and I'd, I'd like to hear it be more of the narrative. You know, we've, we've all recognized that the evolution narrative was so important to build into the teaching of biology more. I think over the last 20 years that's been happening. Um, but I think this this element of chance is is something that we can... Um, emphasize more in, in lots of different places and maybe over the decades that kind of starts to change our mindset a little bit about the world we live in. Excellent. 
Beautiful. Excellent. Thank you so much. That was, a, was really a fantastic chat. We appreciate yeah, the time. Really, really great. My my pleasure. I, I, we could go on longer. I'm sure. <laughs> we definitely. I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to turn the tide. Ask you yeah, guys some yeah, questions. You, you know, too late. Tables. <laughs> uh, too late. Yeah, there it is. But it's great. I really appreciate you guys digging deep into this and giving me this opportunity. So it was a lot yeah, of fun. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. If you love the podcast, please make a recurring donation through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Another way to help the podcast, a free one, tell your friends about us over social media. Tag us on your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook feeds, or just give us a review on Apple Podcasts. On the next episode of Big Biology, we present a panel discussion about COVID-19, a live event in Tampa that Marty and I moderated a few weeks back. The conversation features Jane Castor, mayor of Tampa, Kami Kim, a physician and professor who works on infectious diseases, Edwin Michael, an epidemiologist specializing in the population ecology of disease, and Michael Ting, an immunologist with expertise in vaccine development. In collaboration with the University of South Florida College of Public Health and Morsani College of Medicine, the six of us got together at Bush Gardens, fully masked, and talked about the current status and prospects for the pandemic. Dr. Kim, I wanted to ask the next question uh, and that's about what are we doing to treat COVID-19 now that we didn't know to do when the epidemic began? Well, um, so in the beginning, we didn't really know anything. So we um, gave people a lot of antibiotics. We actually pretty much everyone, I, I practice at Tampa General and we were giving everyone hydroxychloroquine because that was what we had to offer. I think one of the things that we're really struck by is that COVID is very unpredictable and many of the things that we thought we knew don't necessarily apply to COVID. Um, that being said, we've learned a lot. So right now there are treatments that do help patients. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Big Bio interns Ajinkia Dahaki, Dana Baxter, Jordan Greer, and Ruth Demery manage our social media accounts and help us produce the show. As always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.